0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host and reporter at The Automotive News.
1: Hi there. It's Alexa St. John covering tech and suppliers.
0: Joining us on the podcast in just a few minutes is Qualcomm's new Senior Vice President of Automotive, Nicole Dugal. But before we get to our conversation with Nicole... Uh, Alexa, obviously big news this week with Waymo expanding the audience for its driverless rides. Uh, it is now kind of moving out of its early rider program uh, in terms of offering these these rider-only rides that do not have a human safety backup uh, and rolling it out to its Waymo One ride-hailing network. Uh, what did you make of that development?
1: You know, I think, uh, I think that's exciting stuff. I think uh, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Uh, there was actually quite a bit of uh, banter on Twitter between Waymo, uh, Tesla, and Zooks. I believe. A little bit of back and forth about this new announcement between those companies. So uh, definitely curious to see how this goes.
0: Yes, I caught a little bit of that, uh, and that, that was fu- kind of fun to see. Uh, I'm glad to see that those, those, you know, that Waymo in particular kind of took the jab and then returned one rather than just let it go. And this, this is obviously not the only development this week. We, uh, it was kind of a busy news week. Uh, beyond the, the Waymo driverless expansion, we had uh, Amazon kind of unveiling its, its new delivery vans that it's making with Rivian. What do we know about that?
1: Absolutely, these uh, these Amazon Rivian uh, electric delivery vans will begin delivering packages in 2021, so just next year. Um, and 10,000 of the vans will be manufactured by 2022, um, and they will be manufactured at Rivian's plant in Normal, Illinois. Um, and honestly you know i kind of I kind of am intrigued by the look here they're they're these vans are very modular um a little bit plain but certainly very modern on the outside and uh definitely takes a different look from those uh, white vans we see driving around today with just the check mark on the side they're they're a little more identifiable, so I think it'll be cool uh to see these on the roads
0: you know it's funny you mentioned that that sort of plain look of the delivery van because i I feel like the the brown ups trucks for for decades now have kind of been uh unglamorous yet you know an icon of the road in in some sense and uh maybe the the new rivian vehicles that they're making with amazon are the next generation of of that sort of um, plain but but staple of transportation uh, look going on
1: Certainly agree with you there. And um, 100,000 of these are expected to be out uh, by 2030. So pretty ambitious uh, goals over the next uh, 10 years here.
0: Yeah, it was definitely, um, you know, 100,000 by 2030 is um, a big number. And I know that manufacturing starts in 2022, uh, which is not far away. Uh, And also starting in 2022, I don't know if you caught this other mobility news this week. Uh, but Virgin Hyperloop said that it has picked a uh, spot in West Virginia to host a a 500 million dollar certification and test center for for Richard Branson's company, and construction on that facility also beginning in 2022.
1: That's also uh, pretty ambitious, there I think, but uh, you know that that's definitely going to be interesting, and and they're expecting that uh, they'll receive uh, safety certification uh, by 2025. Um, and, and their commercial operations by 2030 um, and federal regulators will be using this center. Um, I'm, I'm very curious. I, I don't know how I feel uh, entirely about Virgin Hyperloop. So uh, I'm very curious to see where this one goes as well.
0: Well, you know, what's funny about that is I, I saw a lot of uh, talk on Twitter about like, why West Virginia, um, which kind of strikes us as maybe an unusual spot for this advanced transportation uh, center, um, but I will, I will, before we get to our conversation with Nicole here, a little bit of trivia. Uh, did you know what many consider the first level four automated system uh, is deployed in, in West Virginia, and it has been deployed since 1975, and it is a, a tram that operates in Morgantown uh, on their personal rapid transit uh, system that connects uh, various campuses of West Virginia University.
1: I did not know that, but that is uh, fantastic trivia. I'm surprised it hasn't come out on the podcast before. <laughs>
0: well, but we're, we're in the early days of, uh, of uh, interesting information like that, I guess. Um, but yes, uh, someday I want to kind of go down and check it out. Um, but that is for a future date. Uh, and today we, uh, you know, we have Nicole waiting for us. So why don't we get to our conversation with Qualcomm's Nicole Dugal? Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Pete. Let's just kick this off a little bit. I, I'm curious that, that Qualcomm is kind of this giant player in the automotive space, uh, but perhaps a, a, a quiet giant in some, some respects. Uh, so for those who don't know who are listening, can you just kick this off by giving us a, a snapshot glance or an overview of, of the breadth of Qualcomm's uh, automotive business? Yes, Absolutely.
2: Uh, And I hope that you're doing well and all is safe and healthy with you and your family. Uh, You know, we've been associated with uh, automotive uh, for about two decades now. Uh, In fact, if you go back to the history of the company, we used to be uh, a telematic services provider for the trucking industry in the mid 80s. So actually, the association goes back even longer. But from a silicon perspective and a semiconductor perspective, we started working with General Motors back in uh, 2002. As CDMA was getting deployed in the U.S., and uh, we thought that uh, you know CDMA was a technology that needed to be pervasive. Auto industry was making its decisions at that time, and we pursued General Motors. We were successful there, and that kind of got us on the track of uh, working with automakers and tier ones globally, in trying to address their needs for uh, you know what is the connected car phenomenon today. So we are in our ninth generation of uh, telematics uh, products. And we've come a long way from where we were when we got started. Uh, you know, we we as a company are always a step behind our customers. So our job is to enable our customers, automakers and tier one with the best technology. Uh, we support them. And so we are not necessarily, uh, we are not as visible or we are quiet in the sense that uh, This is a complicated business. This is a business that requires you go on the trust of your customers, have a lot of credibility, and I think we've been doing that for a long time. Uh, We have expanded, obviously, quite significantly in the last uh, five or six years. We acquired uh, CSR a few years ago, and we acquired the connectivity business. We organically grew our infotainment business uh, on our Snapdragon cockpit platform, where we are a leader in. And we've announced Snapdragon Ride in the last year or so, which is uh, focusing in the ADAS space. So, yeah, I think uh, the portfolio has expanded quite
0: a bit. Nicole, how many OEMs is Qualcomm working with across the globe? Well, we work with everybody.
2: Uh, I think uh, by virtue of the fact that we've been in telematics for so long, our products are really present in, I would say, uh, cars manufactured by pretty much every automaker just because of the history that we've had. And uh, I think as we uh, have expanded into uh, connectivity and then more recently uh, infotainment, uh, we are designing, I would say, at pretty much every major automaker.
0: You mentioned connectivity, and maybe we can, we can start with this, uh, this particular topic. Uh, Qualcomm has done a lot in the V 2 X space, uh, this vehicle-to-vehicle communication or vehicle-to-everything communication. Uh, In fact, earlier this week, you had a V2X summit. Uh, I'm curious, what is the state of of V2X deployment? And uh, what's both the potential and the clouds on the horizon in in the near term?
2: Yeah, so maybe let me give you a bit of a sense as to how we see the connected car landscape, and then I'll leave V2X into it. I think it is pretty obvious that a car now needs to be connected. You can't imagine that a car is not going to have... Uh, connection to the network. Uh, and as you start to think about that paradigm, what it means is that the car has to be relevant in the context of the technology, uh, the, the radio technology that is relevant at that point in time. So nowadays, we're talking about transition to 5G. We are seeing uh, you know, a very huge shift across every automaker in terms of getting ready for that deployment, obviously different points in time. But we expect in the next two to three years, pretty much every automaker is going to have their first 5G program up and running, uh, starting as recently as uh, next year. And with 5G, what essentially ends up happening is the automaker now has to start to think about being part of a wireless ecosystem that is very important for uh, the standard setting that is done, the ecosystem that is investing in those standards the longevity of those standards, uh, the considerations that the automotive industry will bring that those standards have to embrace and plan for. And when we invested in cellular V2X back in 2016, our goal was to make sure that we were able to back uh, this new use case of vehicle-to-vehicle and vehicle-to-infrastructure communications on the basis, on the anchor point of a very strong ecosystem that will support it and exactly that has happened you know so uh, v2x is now going through the standard 3gpp release cycle uh it is embraced through a variety of uh, uh technology standard setting test standard setting uh we started to work on the development of the early technology the prototyping uh we are now i think on our uh, third chipset that is integrating uh cellular v2x and so it's been it's been a long journey, but if you think about it in uh, you know, in the uh, timeframes of automotive, actually not that long. I would say in the last four years, we've gone from evangelization of the technology really to actually get it into cars, which I think is actually incredible. The other thing that we focused on was to make sure that we made the technology and the products available very openly to automakers, to tier ones, to regulators, to test bodies, because this is a safety function. This is something that uh, needs to be transferred and needs to be tested. And I think the results have been great. I think we've received very positive feedback from uh, everybody that has interacted with the technology. And I think uh, it has been started to get deployed in uh, places like China, so it is very good time. The third piece that was uh, really important for us was to make sure that we lowered the barrier to entry. So we decided that we will integrate CB2X into our standard uh, modem product uh, as an optional feature. So uh, it's a software feature that exists, and the cost of enabling CB2X has now been lowered down to a point where there is no real reason why an automaker would say, oh, this isn't something that we want to go enable. So... I feel like we are in a very good place right now in terms of being able to see the ramp
0: of accelerate X over the coming years. Can you contrast uh, how this technology has rolled out in China uh, you know, rather quickly with um, kind of the, the fight that I guess you might call it that's going on in Washington, D.C. right now between uh, the FCC and, and Department of Transportation uh, what's been the struggle in the U.S. to getting this deployed?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, it's rather straightforward. I think in China, there was never really any V2X uh, technology that was in serious consideration uh, over the last you know, decade or so. It wasn't an area of focus. And then as cellular uh, V2X came along, I think the ecosystem in China, and we are part of that ecosystem very much, uh, looked at all of the various options that were available, and decided that it made sense as uh, the market is also moving to 5G. pick a technology that will uh, essentially be, you know, uh, co-anchored with where wireless technology evolution is going and what automakers are embracing. I think in the U.S., uh, it's just a lot of history. right? I think uh, DHRC has been uh, an option that has been available to automakers and to the industry for a long time. Uh, I mean, DSRC goes back to, uh, traces its roots back to to 11 a So it really is, you know, right to the beginning of uh, Wi Fi evolution. And I think one of the reasons why it has not really taken off is that the complexity of standing up uh, an ecosystem that is a unique ecosystem that does not have the ability to scale, doesn't have the investments uh does not have uh you know really the push from a broad set of supporters i think starts to become complicated and so while there have been many opportunities i think the src it's taken a long time for the src to really find uh scale kind of a scaling up uh opportunity and at the same time, uh DSRC has been around in the U.S. for quite some time, for almost uh, you know 10 years now. And as we start to look at uh, how to take this forward, you know what we have been pushing for is that CB2X should definitely get its spectrum. We are very really happy to uh, you know uh, see the recommendation from Commissioner Pai on uh, the 20 megahertz that he has recommended be set aside for CB2X, and we are waiting for that to get approved. That we can get the deployment started. That is what we are aiming for. And I think uh, our automaker partners, our team partners, ourselves, we are all very prepared for that transition. And that's what you are actually hearing in some of these announcements that you referred to earlier. That's what you're hearing, that the ecosystem is ready to take this forward.
0: Nicole, you mentioned some, some of this traction and some of these deployments that that we're starting to see with cellular V2X. Uh, and along those lines, Qualcomm and Audi and the Virginia Department of Transportation uh, announced a new collaboration this week. What are you working on together?
2: Yeah, you know, so I think uh, what we want to demonstrate, what we want to show is that in terms of the readiness of the technology, the automaker, the Department of Transportation in that specific state, the infrastructure provider, in this case, American Tower, and the roadside unit ecosystem, that entire ecosystem is ready to now take this technology forward, so the automakers point of view, and I think uh, if those of you that uh, saw the uh, the uh, the video and the uh, uh, the material that we jointly put together, there are a tremendous number of use cases uh, that go all the way from the safety of life to uh, accident prevention, the reduction of traffic congestion, that We believe with our entire ecosystem, we believe that these are now available for us to be able to get access to. And it is a complicated technology because it requires a number of different players to come together. This isn't something, this is not as simple as putting a modem in a car and getting it to talk to the cloud. It requires a lot of different coordination. And that to me is perhaps the other point of complexity in that you do have to make sure that uh, the ecosystem understands what their role is what they have to contribute towards it, what are the investments required. And these types of press releases are essentially a demonstration of how these many ecosystems are actually embracing the technology, realizing the complexity, addressing it, and moving forward.
0: Can you speak to, like, I think a lot of people kind of conflate cellular V2X with needing 5G to arrive before uh, they can deploy that, but that's not necessarily the case. Can you can you kind of set set us straight on on parsing those two things apart?
2: Yes, absolutely. So I think yeah, there is a bit of a misunderstanding in the market. Uh, so Seller V2X is designed to really be a point to point technology, one car talking to another car or infrastructure talking to a vehicle. There is no requirement of a SIM card. There is no requirement of a connection to the cloud. There is no requirement of and MNO really, there are modes of cellular v2x where you can also bring in mobile network operator, but in standard configuration, you can actually deploy cellular v2x just the point-to-point. And all of the use cases, all of the, uh, you know, what are called VSMs or the basic safety messages, all of those are running in this point-to-point. Configuration. So the uh, roadmap of 4G or 5G on that evolution those are really bringing in new features into the V2X technology for further enhancements. So, faster speeds, lower latencies, things of that nature. But there isn't any direct dependency on the 5G network, or the, or for that matter, even the 4G network, to be available for the underlying V2X technology to function.
0: Let's talk about 5G for a minute, uh, in and of itself. What... What is five G? What What are those enhancements that it's going to bring to the automobile, to the auto industry, to the uh, driver experience, if you will? What's uh, What's on the horizon there?
2: Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people ask the question okay, what are the use cases of five G, and why should I invest in five G? What will I? What should be the return?" I think there are a couple of different ways at can. I think one is if you think about. Uh, the types of data rates that we are now, especially in this virtual environment, one thing that matters to all of us is the quality of Wi-Fi that you have in the house or the quality of data rates that you have in the house. Right? So that has become very important. I think the same is going to be true for the car. You're going to have to manage an experience in the vehicle. That is going to require best-in-class data rates, especially as uh, you know folks start to spend a lot of time uh, in an environment where they are looking to essentially find some level of isolation from being in kind of a crowded environment. So I think the car is going to evolve in terms of becoming a hub where you need to have higher data rates, and we are seeing this transition even on the wired side. Of the car. Those data rates are climbing, up. and so five G will definitely connect there. The other piece that I think is not very well known is that more and more automakers are thinking about. So, what are the types of services that are driving the usage of data in the car? So, you know, we've heard about over the air updates, we've heard about infotainment systems. But really, what is starting to happen is for the car to be relevant in the future, it's going to have to be continuously connected back to the network because there is so much of data that is being generated from the car that the automotive ecosystem and in fact an ecosystem, even beyond the automotive ecosystem, needs access to. Because these are sensors on wheels. They are deployed globally. And if you are not able to tap into the information that they have access to, you're not really going to be able to evolve the technology that you have to go build. So connectivity to the car at all times is going to be super important. And then when folks are, you know, talk about why do I need 5G? Why can't I make them with 4G? I think there are aspects that are as basic as it makes more sense for the network operator to be managing their network on the most spectrally efficient technology that exists at any point in time. So if the cost per bit for, you know, an AT&T or Verizon is much lower on 5 g they're going to push their networks to be the most efficient. And that is going to return back value to the automaker because their cost of connectivity is going to go down. So there are several different factors that are at play. And I think, of course, the use case in the car, you know, people talk about, hey, if the fire is driving autonomously, I'm going to be able to go watch a video. And of course, those things are going to happen at, you know, future points in time. But to me, those are not, uh, you know, the reasons to go move to the next technology. I think the reasons are actually much more fundamental. You have to be able to, uh, as you are advancing technology, you want to be able to make sure that you have the best in class that is available. And especially with wireless technology that has a much longer life, you need to be able to make sure that you are anchoring on the right point in time so that you can take advantage of that evolution.
0: Nicole, it sounds like you're talking about, you know, we need, we need this kind of increased connectivity for everything from entertaining the kids in the back seat to uh, data collection to over-the-air updates to, you know, running, you know, getting safety-critical information back and forth. Uh, so how, you know, how does Qualcomm kind of go about prioritizing all these different uses? Yeah, I think,
2: uh, you know, so first of all, the technology itself has the ability to prioritize. There's priority access depending upon what type of service you are running. If you're running an emergency call, it's going to have priority over other types of traffic. If you're running CD2X, it's going to have its own dedicated priority over other use cases. So that is built in into the standard. That's built in into the technology. And then we, of course, implement it such so that, uh, you know, th- those things are managed. And it's no different than what has been done in other UNIWIAC Uh
0: How do you see this all evolving over, let's say, the next 10 years? It's 2020 right now. Uh, what what does this whole ecosystem look like in 2030?
2: Yeah, it's an excellent question. And, uh, you know, the way that I kind of, I like to use the analogy of, uh, you know, what we are all uh, familiar with. So if you think about if you think about your home where you are working from your home, you are consuming, you, you are a consumer in your home, but you're also an enterprise worker in your home. And what types of capabilities does your home offer to you? It has a cable modem, it has Wi-Fi, it has a television, multiple televisions, it has routers. I think the car essentially is exactly that. If you think about what the car is going to become in the future, and if you envision all the various types of use cases that transportation at large is going to need, it is a very similar example. And the complexity actually is in the sense that the automaker needs to manage the vehicle or the asset that they manufacture as an IT asset. It's basically something that they're responsible for because they're responsible for its security, for its connectivity, for its usage for uh, its uptime, at the same time, they have to be able to provide service for a variety of different end users. End users are fixed applications that are part of the vehicle and applications that are transient, people coming in and going out, the car being used in a variety of different services. So to me, there is an entire evolution of the services use case for the automobile that is upon us. And it is not a straightforward use case because there are lots of dependencies that you have with the car that you don't have in the home uh, or that you don't have with the mobile device. Uh, you know, the life cycle, the quality requirements, the global nature of the requirement. So I, I think that to me, this is, I mean, it smells opportunity across the board because there are so many different problems to go solve. And I think that's what uh, I think is gonna happen from a connectivity perspective
0: next 10 how does if it does it all, I'm curious how does COVID change uh, those use cases or you know do you have to reimagine all the different things that uh, you know connectivity might be used to, to augment?
2: Yeah so I think you brought up in your previous question you know the whole idea of quality of service and right? so I, I would think one major area is going to be uh, conferencing in the car. Uh, and uh, how do you make sure that you have high quality links with high quality audio, with audio zones that are dedicated? How do you make sure that from a video quality perspective, that is something that can be managed? Uh, those things are going to be, in my mind, super important because I think personal space, uh, I think, is now going forward going to be something that people are going to uh, consider as uh, something that is very important for their decision making, you know, where they live. Uh, how they travel, uh, how they vacation. And I think the, the, the role of communications is central to all of those decisions. And so I think even to your earlier question as to what will happen over the next 10 years, these factors, and that's why to me, 5G is going to be a no-brainer because you need a tremendous amount of capacity and low-latency links to be able to actually make all of this happen.
0: Let me. I'm going to kind of borrow from my same question about uh, what does the world look like in 2030, but but maybe a separate topic here. Let's let's talk about driver assist systems and ADAS. Obviously, within the past few months, Qualcomm uh, entered into a partnership with VNIR on uh, collaborating on driver assist systems. So um, let me ask you about that first, and then you know maybe two part question. We can move on to to the bigger uh, driver assist. Uh, picture, what uh, what are you working on with Vionier?
2: Yeah, so uh, you know, what we see in front of us on the driver assistance and autonomous driving side are a set of opportunities that I would break down as follows. One is the basic driver assistance, which is becoming really, it already is a mandated technology. Every car has to be able to have a certain amount of accident prevention assistance features to be able to uh, help the car be safer, help the driver be safer. Uh, the second piece is all the convenience features that are coming in, where you can actually disengage for a period of time safely in the car is going to manage uh, driving, part of the effort for you. And then, of course, the third piece is moving towards autonomy, where the driver is disengaged. Uh, from a silicon perspective, we announced at the beginning of this year our Snapdragon Ride platform and a plan to be able to really address all of these things So we believe that from a silicon perspective. Uh, what is needed is best-in-class processors uh, from a power perspective, from a performance perspective, and from a cost perspective that are relevant for what the car industry needs. Right? The car industry cannot afford to go put something into a vehicle that has a power requirement that uh, you know the car is designed to go meet. So those things are just going to be on starters. And we've seen a tremendous amount of interest in the Snapdragon right portfolio from all of our customers. We have, have uh, started working with a few of them. We announced some partnerships at CES. And uh, what we are seeing there is uh, the way that it starts to look to us, uh, it is the architecture of the car of the future is going to evolve to where it's going to need multi-purpose heterogeneous processors that run high-performance, low power workloads. And those will be sprinkled across the vehicle. And you have to be able to design for that for that exact set point. So I think that part of the equation is working out. To your question on Vioneer, what we are what we announced with Vioneer was a partnership on the stack. So Vioneer uh, is a tier one, but they also build their own ADAS stacks. And what the partnership is about is we are going to start to offer a Vioneer stack along with our silicon as a combined offering. So uh, we is going to set aside its stack team to go exclusively work with our silicon. And uh, this is for the next generation that's coming up for SOP 2324 timeframe. And uh, this partnership will make available to the auto industry and the tier ones, an option where they have now the stack, which will be the vision stack and the drive policy stack, combined with our silicon, Available as a combined solution, integrated solution, that creates more options, frankly, for the auto industry. Of course, if uh, car makers and tier ones choose to develop their own stack and just want to use our silicon, that option, of course, uh, has always been there and will continue.
0: You mentioned Snapdragon Ride before, um, I just want to make sure we kind of drill down on that a little bit. Uh, how customizable is that? To, you know, from an, to go from one automaker or tier one to the other. Um, can they can they use that um, you know to, to suit their own purposes is it easy to customize
2: Yeah, absolutely so I think uh, you know we've had a tremendous amount of experience with our cockpit uh, uh, partnership over the last five years one thing that we believe is very important is to have an open and programmable platform because uh, the use cases are different across automakers across tiers of vehicle across regions And so by design, the platform is programmable. Now, you know, uh, Pete, that there are so many different types of workloads. You have uh, uh, compute-intensive workloads, you have AI-intensive workloads, you have graphics-intensive workloads, DSPs. We have always built a heterogeneous architecture that allows you to be able to have access to purpose-built IP, depending upon the workload that you need. And now what we are doing is we are adding layers of SDKs and uh, tool chains that allow for whatever it is that the automaker is looking to design for to be run the most. And uh, that, in my mind, coupled with, of course, the performance and the power consumption is what makes the Snapdragon suite of products very attractive, including, of course, Snapdragon 9. Uh
0: So we've been talking about driver assist systems a little bit. I want to ask you about... Uh... You know, something that's always interested me is that Qualcomm has its own autonomous driving division. Uh, so I'm curious, what are you developing on that front? And are you, are you primarily pioneering technologies to, to trickle them down into ADAS? Or, or is this its own unique uh, standalone product that you're uh, working on?
2: So it's a combination. Uh, we do a lot of software development uh, in that division, and the software development focuses on the following areas. We spend a lot of time on next-generation AI optimization. So, what are the types of networks? What are the types of optimizations that we need to do? What workloads that are ADAS and AD specific? We spend a lot of time on uh, new features like driver monitoring and occupant monitoring, which require. Uh, very deep understanding of computer vision, but you also have to be uh, able to run these uh, systems and these algorithms in low power mode. Uh, We also spend a lot of time on features like localization where you are able to, with very limited data, find yourself very accurately in terms of geolocating yourself so that you know where you sit within a high-definition map or a low-definition map. So these are all efforts that are geared towards advances in autonomous driving uh, and uh, ADAS. And, uh, you know, we have a variety of ways to work with partners. We will make these modules available to partners, to automakers. In some cases, we will work with a stack provider to go optimize their product further. And in some cases, we may
0: just offer the product by ourselves. A
2: variety of different options. But I think that program is working quite fast.
0: You mentioned uh, some of the work that Qualcomm is doing in that, that cockpit realm, cockpit experience. Uh, tell me more about that aspect of your business.
2: So, you know, that part of the business to me is fascinating because when we started engaging in that business five, six years ago, it was essentially infotainment. It was the screen that has the map and, you know, the stuff that uh, changes the, the climate in the car and the seat settings and things of that nature. It has really come a very long way. And I think a few things are going on. I think one is uh, the, the cabin of the vehicle, the interior of the vehicle has become a major point of differentiation for the automaker. The automaker wants to be able to make that experience something that their customers enjoy. Uh, and this is done by uh, bringing in next generation displays. Uh, you're seeing curved displays, you're seeing displays that go across the front of the vehicle, rear seat displays. Uh, cameras, there's a lot of camera technology that's now going into the vehicle for uh, all types of use cases, surveillance, driver monitoring, uh, rear view, surround view type features. And then, of course, bringing in content and applications in the car that are relevant to the context of the car. So what we found ourselves in the middle of as we started to focus on the cockpit was how can we differentiate, how can we bring something that allows us to be able to create this differentiation point for automakers. And it is really fascinating how much opportunity there is. So on the silicon side, we've spent a lot of time integrating a variety of these use cases into the same piece of silicon because that allows automakers to be able to bring the cost down and take these features to every tier of the vehicle. From a software perspective, uh, there are ecosystems like the Google Automotive Services ecosystem that is now entering uh, uh, cars with a special version of Android designed to work in the vehicle and we've been partnered with uh, the Google team there for a number of years to be able to make that happen. But software in the car is much more complex in the cockpit because it has to coexist with a variety of features. You need real-time operating systems. We work with partners like UNIX and Hills. there. You need uh, to be able to deal with uh, region-specific uh, use cases. So China has a very different ecosystem than the US might have. And then you're also writing software that is integrating a variety of different subsystems and bringing them together. Audio, multimedia, cameras, clusters. So. This is al- has allowed us to really get into a position of strength. We now have over uh, 20 automakers that have designed or uh, are in production with Snapdragon cockpit systems. And you know, to imagine that we just got started in 2016. Uh, 2016 was our first start of production. I think this has really been a great success for uh, uh, the automotive business at Qualcomm.
0: You kind of referenced this earlier, but I'm curious of... You know, how many different functions can you get on one piece of silicon?
2: I think it depends upon the performance point of the silicon. But to give you an example, uh, in the most advanced silicon that uh, we are working on now, uh, we could typically support between 8 and 10 displays concurrently. We would support uh, multi-audio zones to be able to manage uh, each part of the vehicle independently. We could support as many as, uh, you know... uh, 12 cameras, uh, external facing cameras, internal cameras. We would support uh, features like surveillance, driver monitoring, occupant monitoring. We would manage uh, the cluster display on one operating system, Android as a second one, and the passenger display as a third one. So, completely independent concurrent systems, rare seat entertainment. It really is a very long list of things that you could be doing. So and I think this is kind of what is changing in the car in that uh, all these uh, all these processes are becoming zonal computers. They are designed to really be able to manage an entire zone in the vehicle uh, or multiple zones in the vehicle. And that's what gives the flexibility to the automaker in being able to bring these types of capabilities all the way down to any tier of vehicle that they want to differentiate.
0: Sure, you can imagine them differentiating, uh, you know, to your point, by zone, um, you know that really speaks to, you know, you know, for example, ride hailing, uh, you know, in a vehicle with with different areas for for individual passengers, or um, you know, in, in this era where maybe personal space is is all more a premium that that you can really tailor uh, each zone in a car to an individual person.
2: That is exactly right. I mean, uh, you know, the back of the car is really an entertainment system or something where you have to deal with payments, services, applications. So very different type of zone in the front of the car, and we are seeing all of that happen as we speak. So it really is fascinating as to how, when you start to think about the vehicle as really another environment where you need to be designing products and services and applications for. How much How much opportunity for differentiation there is.
0: Uh, so we've been talking a lot about Qualcomm and its automotive business. Uh, before too much time passes, I want to ask you about yourself and you know how did you get into uh, the auto industry, so to speak, or at least Qualcomm's division that uh, that works with the auto industry.
2: And I, I'm an I'm a Qualcomm veteran. I joined in '95 as an engineer, so I've spent a lot of time uh, at the company. And, you know, one thing that uh, I think uh, maybe well-known, but I will uh, say it anyway, I think Qualcomm has been known for its innovation from the very beginning. I mean, the the team, the company has been an engine of technology innovation since its inception. And I think we have, uh, you know, we are a big startup in some ways, in the sense that uh, we chase technologies new business ideas new opportunities and uh, you know that combination of technology innovation uh focusing on opportunities and then executing to those i think uh, makes us quite unique as a company now uh, i have uh, been in the automotive business uh, for about 10 years but uh, i've done a lot of different things in the past i've been in the handset business and infrastructure consulting. And so I've worked with a variety of different parts of the company, different regions. And I think automotive was interesting in that we had the long history with telematics that I talked about earlier. And in 2011, we started to see that uh, most automakers were actually getting serious about uh, making telematics a standard part of their uh, program. So we created a small group. I was part of that initial team start to go focus on uh, what the needs of the auto industry would look like and as we started to work much more closely with automakers it became pretty evident that uh, the opportunity was much larger than just uh, telematic and so we kicked off and you know we, we kicked off uh, an infotainment effort in 2013 in Audi that went into production in 2016. and what we started to really learn uh, is how to work with the auto industry What are things that are very unique to auto that we have to learn, where we have to make changes? And what are certain things that we bring as value additions to the auto industry that can make, that can bring advantages to the auto industry? And that's kind of been the recipe. It's been a simple recipe, but we have scaled it very quickly. And uh, I think uh, our DNA as a company fits in very well with the types of things that uh, automakers expect from their partners, from their suppliers. Innovation brought portfolio, the credibility, reliability, the trust, uh, you know, being able to move fast when needed. And, uh, you know, I think that has allowed us to consistently add more things to our portfolio. The cockpit program, we added CV2X, we brought Snapdragon ride, we are now moving into 5G, so, uh, I think it's just a great fit as an industry with the types of things that uh, we do at the company from innovation and customer
0: business. Nicole, any closing thoughts today? Anything that we did not talk about that you would like to?
2: I I think we are at this, uh, I think this this has become a bit of a cliche, but I think the automotive industry is in this very interesting time. I think you asked the question as to what cars will look like in 2030. The way that I kind of like to, you know, operate to that question is: what are all of the things that we have to do today so that we can be in a position where we can influence that change in uh, the next uh, three to five years? So I think this is a very interesting industry. Obviously, there are so much of opportunity. There's so much of change coming, and it will really change the way that society, uh, you know, uses the technology. Consumers use the technology and. Uh, so uh, I find myself and our team very fortunate to be in this uh, place where we can actually uh, be part of influencing this change. And I appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk to us.
0: Likewise. Thank you for, uh, for making the time to be on the podcast today. We appreciate it. Thank
1: you, Pete. Thanks again, Nicole, for joining us on Shift Podcast. Uh, it was really interesting, Pete, but I was wondering what your biggest takeaway was here.
0: You know, that's a good question. Uh, I think for me, it is probably that a decades long stalemate between DSRC and cellular seems to have reached a, an inflection point where the auto industry is is choosing to go these cellular routes. And, you know, in some sense, that's a lot of uh, inside baseball and maybe a lot of people beyond the industry don't care, but, you know, one of these technologies had to win out in order for either to be effective. And I, I think that we see the, the you know, the cracks or, or the writing is on the wall and uh, and people are moving forward in a cellular direction. So that's my big takeaway. Uh, that is it for this week. Uh, we will be back next week. And uh, thank you to our producer, Eric Jones. And thank you to uh, our audience for listening. See you next week.